Well, it was early in 1982 that Teresa and I took a trip with some friends of ours. Actually, they were friends of hers. Um, and she was trying to make sure that I became friends with them. We had just gotten married a few months before that. And so we went on a trip from Odessa to Riodosa and especially to Sierra Blanca. We were going up there to ski. And one morning as we were headed up the ski or to the ski area, uh, I experienced something that sticks with me. Even these 30-something years later, it remi- I'm reminded of it on a regular basis. We were, you know how that road is that goes up to Ski Apache. Um, it's not necessarily the safest, and 30-something years ago, it was really not. And so it, we had taken our place in that long processional of cars trying to get up there in time for the ski area to open so that you could ski all day long. We took our place in that, and as we were making our way up, we got far enough up that we were into some of those switchbacks in the road that goes up, and one of them was a 180-degree switchback. And so as we came around one corner going up, we ended up going the exact opposite direction, but on a very steep incline. I remember that because it was that morning after a snow melt from the previous day. And so at the end of the day, as the snow heated up and, you know, started melting across the road, well, then it got uh, sub-freezing in the night temperatures. And so as I came around that corner, I hit a patch of ice, and my car died. Now, if you haven't experienced that, let me just suggest to you that some things flash through your mind pretty quickly there. I was immediately concerned about getting my car started, and as the momentum that we had going forward quickly played out and we started sliding backwards, I became aware that there was cars coming around that corner who didn't know that I was going the wrong direction in their lane. And so it was quite a mess, and I really was afraid we were going to go off of the backside of that cliff that was immediately behind us. Now, clearly, the fact that I'm standing here tells you that we made it out okay. I always, always need to say that because people always ask me, so how did it turn out? Did you make it? <laughs> so yes, we made it. But <laughs> having said that, it gave me a lifelong lesson as a pastor and as a leader in a church. I've found through the years many circumstances in my own life and the lives of other people where it seemed that we were going uphill on ice and we lose momentum. That ever happened with you? Where things seem to be going fine, you're headed into a particular part of your life that things looks like it ought to be fun and games and you know clowns and balloons and the whole nine yards and then something happens and suddenly you're sliding backwards on ice. Your momentum forward is gone and You're doing all you can, and it almost can seem like your very survival is at stake. When you find yourself in those circumstances, how do you respond? What do you do? Let let me push that even outside of just you and where you sit there in your family unit, and let's push that out into that circle that is part of your life, that circle of people that God has strategically placed you into. Because they need life, and you're the one who takes life into that. When they run into those circumstances, how do you respond? 
What is the message that we take into those times in life when all of our balance and the equilibrium that we strive for so much is suddenly gone? What do you do with that? Today, as we come to those times, and we, those times that we especially recognize that we're working uphill and it doesn't seem to be working out, I want to train your attention to the vision and that part of our life as a church that we are continuing to emphasize and bring to the surface so that it's always in our awareness. We are called as the church of Jesus Christ to connect people with the love and the life of Jesus. But the reality is, as we step into that challenge and into that calling, the reality is that we step into a world that many are calling a post-Christian world. And the task itself, the task of connecting people, the task of building bridges into those parts of the borderlands, the greater El Paso area, those people, those groups that need the love and the life of Jesus Christ, that task itself may be so daunting to us that we're going to feel like we are going uphill, sliding backwards on ice. It's easy for us in those circumstances and situations to fall into that religious part that's based in truth, but that religious part of who we are, that when we find ourselves in those situations that take us beyond ourselves, that we fall into grace, that we step into the power and the resource that Jesus Christ gives to us. And I would suggest to you, and it won't be the first time nor the last that I suggest this to you, but as we seek to step into our calling and the vision that God has given to us, we need to fall into the resource that Jesus Christ gives. As I've said many times in our Wednesday night Bible studies, God resources that which he requires. But there will be times that we will be pushed to our limits. Welcome to the next in our series. This one's tied to the vision series, but it's really a decidedly different focus. This is almost more towards the discussion about sins. So if you'll take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 11, I want to invite you there, and I'm just going to tell you that uh, this is a one-point sermon. Don't get excited because the introduction is going to be the longest introduction you've ever heard for a sermon, I feel sure. And so probably in about 10 minutes, you're going to be thinking, is he ever going to use Scripture today? I assure you that I am. Today we step into what I believe is a strategy that will help us to be effective as we address the vision that God has, that as we build bridges that connect people with the love and the life of Jesus Christ, we must take something that bridges the gap between how we think and live and how those people think and live. So here's the first truth that I want you to grab Everybody doesn't want what you have. Let me say that again. Everybody does not want what you have. The church I served before I came here, we had uh, four ladies in the office, and, and the way they handled the office was such that they 
finally just pushed the pastor into another part of the building. So it was, I was regularly not welcome to go into that part of the building. And every other staff member was kind of on the edges of where this particular office staff operated. And uh, I, I noticed the first time that I came down with one of those East Texas allergy attacks uh, that as I went into the office where they were, because I had to go in there to do some stuff, you know, and make sure that they were working and all of that. Uh, as I came in and I sneezed or something like that, the lady who was in charge of that part of the office immediately said, don't do that in here. <laughs> well, I was new to East Texas, but I was not new to allergies. And I knew that it wasn't quite as easy as saying, don't sneeze if you're needing to sneeze. And I kind of looked at her funny, I'm sure, and sneezed again. (laughs) She grabbed a can of Lysol, and she immediately began to spray it in my general vicinity. (laughs) I was not offended by that. I was offended by that, just, just be honest. And she said this to me. And it wasn't the last time she would say it to me because I was there for six years. I, I regularly came in there with allergy issues. And she said this to me, we don't want what you have. If you're sick, stay out of this office. Let me suggest to you that that is very likely the sentiment that people who do not accept Jesus Christ in this day feel about us. They don't want what we have. Or at least that may be the way it's presented to us. Here, I'm going to give you a couple of premises that I carry with me every day. Remember, we're trying to lay now a foundation for us as a church and as individuals as we go forward to be very intentional in taking the good news, the love and the life of Jesus into the people and the lives of our community. And as we do this, here are a couple of premises that I think I've seen through the years to prove themselves to be true no matter where I've lived. Here's the first one. Those with whom we intend to connect are not likely to be part of a community of faith. I'll run it by you again. I know some of you take notes. So those with whom we intend to connect are not likely to be part of a community of faith. Now, that's not to say that there are not people out there who are part of community of faith, maybe even our community of faith, who need to know in a very personal way the love and the life of Jesus Christ. But as a rule, in this post-Christian society in which we live today, more and more people are not part of a community of faith. So that means that one of the things that we come into is we have to recognize that this is really kind of one of those moments where I would not have been surprised if some of you might have looked at me after that comment and said, duh. The reality is that attendance in our churches is on the decline, not on the ramp up. More and more people have said to us, I'm not going to be part of any church, any religious organization. I'm just not going to do it. Here's the twin premise that goes with that. It is unlikely that they will want to be part of one. So I've said two things, really one thing, two different ways. By and large, the people of our 21st century American society that some say is post-Christian, most of them are not, or many of them are not part of a community of faith. 
and they don't want to be. You know why I say that? Because the reality is, and this is true for us too, all of us have things that we must do and things that we want to do. Now, here are the things that you must do. You must work. Well, you may not need to. Very few people that I know in our world are so independently wealthy that they don't have to work anymore. But even if you have that kind of wealth, you better be working at the wealth. Otherwise, it could easily go away, especially in these volatile days. And so most of us have that part of our lives where we must work. And so for the vast majority of our church, I'm sure that on any given day of the 24 hours that are available to us, at least eight of those, and most of us work a lot more than eight hours a day, at least eight of those will be tied to a job that we must do. If you're retired, I understand, but there's parts of your life as a retiree also that things that you must do. If you're not working already and maybe you're in school, well, you have to go to school. And there would be those who would argue. I had friends who argued this. I don't really have to go to school. I have to show up at the campus, but I don't have to go to class. Well, let me just invite you to get real about that and realize that if you don't do that, you're going to go to work where you must work a lot sooner than if you stayed in school. The things that we must do. But outside of the things that we must do, we have the things that we can do. This is what we call free time. The very reality of that term means that there are things that are not our free time, things that we must do. But each of us, in the time that we have that is free time, where we can do what we want to do, we tend to do the things that are most important to us. So, some of you use your free time to work on your hobbies. Some of you do woodworking. I know I've seen some incredible work that some of the people that I know that do woodworking in our church, they do such good work that I I just gave up woodworking altogether. Some of you use your free time to do other things like exercise. I don't understand that, but you do. I do understand that actually. Some of you, maybe the younger set, like to take your free time and play video games. We have things that we must do, and that opens the door for us to have time to do the things that we want to do, our free time. Where does church fit in there? For most of us, there is that, there is that group of our church people here who would sit there and say, I have to come as they look up at their parents. I have to come to church. That's a must-do kind of thing. But for most of us as adults, we come to church because we want to. It's part of our free time. And it's important enough to us that we build it into the free time that we have. Now, we may accept some responsibilities in that part of our life that leads us to say, well, I really need to be there. It's still not a must-do. Nobody makes you come to church. Now, that takes me back to where I started with all of this. That group of people in our society, this post-Christian society, who don't come to church, don't come because it's not important enough to them to come. Now, I know that there would be some of those, some of our people, some of you who are watching by television. You don't come to church because you can't. Homebound or some other health kind of related issue. I'm not talking about 
those folks. I'm talking about the people in our society out there, the ones that we are called to connect with the love and the life of Jesus Christ. Many of them have made the decision, I'm not going to be part of a community of faith. It's just not important enough to me. So what do we do with that? Because here we are saying our responsibility is to connect with them. And they, by definition, are essentially saying, I don't really want that. Let me give you a third truth claim or premise here that really makes this even harder. Back to the image of trying to go uphill but sliding backwards on ice. By and large, those people in post-Christian society are rejecting our truth claims too. So we step out into the field with a truth claim that says Jesus Christ is the Son of God and immediately there is a group of people who respond to that and say, I don't believe that. Another truth claim that we take, and we take it very seriously, as we should. But the Bible is the Word of God, the guide for our lives. And immediately we're confronted with people out there who say, I don't believe that. If you don't believe those things that I've just said, have a conversation with somebody in the LGBTQXYZ, that that community who has rejected the positions that evangelical Christians take based on the Word of God. What I'm trying to do in this early part of this introduction for this message today is to say to us, we are trying to do something that is incredibly difficult. If we embrace a call that says we will connect people with the love and the life of Jesus Christ, we should be realistic enough on the front end to recognize that we're taking a message that has been roundly dismissed in our society. Does that mean that we should just not do it? No, it doesn't mean that. It just means that we need to make sure that we're thinking through these things. How will we accomplish this? So that gives me to another point of strategy. The first one was everybody doesn't want what you have. The second one is give them something that they cannot deny. We can have debates all day long. Matter of fact, this coming Saturday... Our youth and other youth in the church youth in the city of El Paso are coming to this church. Jeremy and the other youth ministers in the network in this city are doing an apologetics kind of a day on Saturday to try to help kids with answers on how to stand up in the face of all of this rejection that we get in our society. Here's part of my answer to that for us, and that is that we need to give them something that they cannot deny. And that is, as we have this uphill struggle before us, and it will seem at times like we have no momentum in doing that, here's something that they cannot deny. That is the life that Jesus lived and continues to offer. For over a year now, more or less 15 months, you've been hearing me quote John chapter 10 and verse 10. If you haven't already memorized it, you probably should. That's the one where 
Jesus says the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But the back half of that is the one that I really want to emphasize this morning. Jesus said, but I have come that you may have life, and it is an abundant life. My suggestion to us and to you is that that is not a religious statement that Jesus makes. He is not building a religion with that. He's talking about it as a promise. I have come so that you can have life that is incredibly amazing, abundant, or as I like to say in Road Trammel shorthand, it's a life that will blow your mind. You see, I happen to believe that Jesus, as the model of that life, was the most appealing character of his day. Let me even take it a step further than that. I still believe that Jesus and that life that he's talking about, the life that he lived out in front of everybody, is the most appealing character of all of history. People still are drawn to him. The life that Jesus offers is noteworthy. It is appealing, and it cannot be denied. Jesus in this life is attractive and compelling. Yesterday, we met our local El Paso Baptist Association, met for our annual meeting at Scottsdale Baptist Church. Joseph Christofferson, who is our executive director, and he's actually in his last little part of his time here. He's retiring very soon. But in his address to our association yesterday, Association of Baptist Churches, he talked about some of the boards and some of the the groups, the panels and things that he has sat in uh, as part of the community of El Paso. And he made this statement. It didn't surprise me, but I'm glad that I was able to hear it from someone who's down in those trenches. He asked this question, do you want to know how the jokes about Baptists? It was not a complimentary kind of perspective. They see us, many do, as narrow-minded, judgmental. They may not want what we have. So that means that we need to double down and make sure that we give and offer what matters. Jesus is our example in that, not only in the life that he gives, but also in the life that he lived. So I like to say it this way. People may not accept your religion, but they won't be able to resist your relationship with Jesus Christ. So you see, when it really comes right down to it, the reality is that we need to live a life that is marked by the power and the presence of Jesus Christ. They can't deny the life. What are we offering to people? Are we offering just a set of beliefs? Are we offering a life that is appealing and compelling, that earns a hearing with people who have long since rejected the labels? We're going to build bridges. We have to overcome the disinterest that is there. So what kind of life does that? And finally, we come to our text for the day. I told you you would wonder if I would get there or not. Hebrews chapter 11. What we find in the book of Hebrews 
is this long, extended argument for the superiority of Jesus Christ. And the writer of Hebrews begins in those early chapters and marches through up through chapter 10, roughly verse, uh, chapter 11, and he argues for Jesus as being superior to every key component of Judaism. He's writing to a group of people who are questioning whether or not Jesus is all that he uh, is said to be. And so he just lays out this argument. By the time we come to chapter 11, he is beginning now to take that and give us practical uh, input as it relates. So if Jesus is superior, and he is, then so what? What does that mean to our lives? And so in chapter 11, we come to this, um, this incredible little powerful little statement. Chapter 11, verse 6, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. What he's saying for us here is that the life that pleases God is a life that is marked by faith. Now, I need to do some explaining here. It's one of the reasons this is a series and not just a single sermon. Because the life of faith gets some bad play in the way we think sometimes. Because we tend to take faith as this body of knowledge. And so we say things like keep the faith or, or be true to the faith. And typically what we mean by that is we take this whole big conglomerate of doctrine that we hold together and say that is our Christian faith. And that's, that's okay. I mean, we should do those things. But that's just one aspect of the word faith. And that's not the aspect that the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing here. He's, and I know this because you take, he takes the whole chapter 11 or nearly all of chapter 11 to lay out examples of what kind of faith and what kind of living in faith pleases God. And so even verse 6 comes out of part of that example because back in verse 5 he starts talking about Enoch. You go back to the book of Genesis and read the story of Enoch, and you find that here's a guy who pleased God with the way he lives. That's verse 5 of chapter 11. So much so that God finally just said, you know what, just, let's just skip the whole death thing and just come on to glory. It is the life of faith that pleases God. Nobody pleased God in their life more than Jesus did. And so what he holds out for us is that if we're going to live a life that pleases God, it has to be a life that is characterized by faith. And the life that pleases God is compelling to people. Whether they accept Jesus or not, they cannot deny that that's a different life. So over the next four weeks, after today, the next four weeks takes us right up to Thanksgiving. We will unpack a little bit of this one guy. Chapter 11, verse 8 talks about Abram. As a matter of fact, Abraham gets more space in chapter 11 of Hebrews than any other individual. So we're going to go back next week in chapter 12 of Genesis and we're going to start looking at the life of Abraham. But if we're going to put so much emphasis on faith and the life of faith, it's not that we put it there, God puts it there. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. We should know what faith is. So very quickly... Let me highlight a couple of things. Chapter 11, verse 1, gives us something of a working definition of what faith is. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
the conviction of things not seen. You may have a translation that says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things that we do not see. Faith is what? It is first assurance. This verse, by the way, is a mirror verse. He says one thing, but he says it two different ways. One statement here with synonyms of those same words on the backside, it it makes this one truth statement. Faith is assurance. Faith is conviction. I'll put it in my terms for today. Faith is certainty. Certainty of what? Well, first of all, he says certainty of things hoped for. Be careful here. Some of our brethren in Christendom in our day gets a little out of balance on some of this faith stuff, in my opinion. So be careful here. Faith is the certainty, the assurance of things hoped for. So let me translate forward about four hours, four and a half hours from now, when the Dallas Cowboys, the mighty Dallas Cowboys, will play those sorry, stinking Redskins from Washington. How many of you are with me? We hope that Dallas shows up. Okay, that's not the word hope here. That's wishful thinking. I've had this discussion with us before. But here's where we can get out of balance if we're not careful. We can say it is the certainty of things that we hope for. So in other words, some people would say, if you just believe it hard enough, just be strong enough in your belief, then God will make it happen. So let's, if that were true, let's all hope and believe that the Cowboys will show up today. But that's, that's not biblical faith. That's not even close to biblical faith. That's wishful thinking. The other statement, the conviction of things not seen. Be careful here, too, because we could take that same thing. Well, if we just believe it hard enough that God is is bound to deliver it for us, that's just garbage. But if it worked that way, then I'm going to believe really hard that I can win that Powerball without even buying a ticket. You win $1.7 billion, then I'm going to talk about tithing the next day. (laughs) No, I'm not. If you're new to our church, that's not, I'm just messing around. (laughs) So let me close this way. When we come to an uphill struggle, And that uphill struggle in taking the good news of Jesus Christ to a world that is soundly trying to move past it, there will be times that we're going to feel like we're slipping backward on ice. But it is the life of Jesus Christ that overcomes any argument against what we're talking about. And we are called to live that life out. So for the next four weeks... We'll look at that. We'll study that. We'll deal with that. So the question for the day is, do you have that life? If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's where you start. And if you don't know what that means, the invitation time we're about to go into gives you the opportunity to come, and we'll talk about that. And we invite you to do that, to to know Jesus Christ on a personal level. The reality is many, probably most of us in here today would say that we already know Jesus Christ. So my question for you is, are you living life at a level of faith in him that causes people to notice and are compelled 
to the truth claims of Jesus Christ. If not, that's where you start. And that means that could be a rededication of your life. It could be just right there where you are, just kind of recentering everything with Jesus Christ at the, at the foundation, at the forefront of how you live. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this time in the service now, we pray that you would move in the hearts of all of us and that we would come to a point where we would surrender to you, whether for the first time or for the thousandth time, that you would be who you are and that we would be ones who take who you are and put every part of our trust in you and listen for your voice and your directive. And in the process of doing that, that people would come to know you because of what they see in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.